Hello and thanks for joining us. My name's Ian Stroud. And my name is David Malone. And this is Hyperland. And today I'm really pleased to welcome onto the show Jonathan Sugarman. Um, Jonathan is without a doubt the most important whistleblower of the financial crisis, certainly in Ireland, and one of the most important whistleblowers of the whole financial crisis. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Um, We first started talking end of 2007, 2008. Um, Some of the details have got out through publications and you've done interviews, but do you mind telling us, for people who don't know the story, what you did in Unicredit and how your story began to unfold? With pleasure. Um, Well, I think most people lead a happy life without ever knowing that a bank has a risk manager. Um, The terms of the operating license of every bank stipulate that not only is there a CEO and head of treasury and dealer, etc., there's also a risk manager whose job it is to make sure that we're not speeding over the the limit that we're not buying, um, say, gold or silver without approval of our board of directors. So um, basically, I'm there to watch the controls the whole day as the bank goes about doing its business. Right. And and is is there a law that you have to obey or you just do what your bosses say? There there are several laws. issued by the regulating body. Um, They've changed names, but the laws are still there, be it Central Bank of Ireland or Financial Services Regulator or the FSA in London. And of course, given their inability to actually enforce any of their own regulation, they've all changed their names, but in essence, their roles are still the same, which is to regulate the banks. (laughs) Um, These regulations stipulate quite clearly what are the controls that we should have in place and what are the limits we should be looking out for. So in effect, you're the gatekeeper, really? Yes. Yeah. And what happens to you if you don't follow that? I mean, are there actual consequences for you if you don't keep the bank in line or do do you just... According to the regulations, at the time of my resignation, I could face a penalty, a prison penalty of up to five years. For not not reporting something that was bad? No, for actually, A, failing to report is a breach in its own right. Yeah. But if a breach meant that we were operating outside the remit of our license, yeah, which meant that I could face up to five years in jail for allowing the bank to operate outside of its license. Okay, so it's serious stuff. All right, so we're in, what, 2007, and you're the risk manager of Unicredit Ireland. So it's your job to make sure, what, at the end of every night, the bank has enough money to open the next morning. Precisely. So at the end of every business day, which is regarded as five o'clock, every every trade after five is booked into the next day's uh, ledger. But 
we there's a cutoff point at five o'clock at which point we take an image all across the bank's activities to make sure that as of that day at five o'clock in the afternoon we were not exceeding any of our limits we were not lending too much to any particular person or company we had sufficient amounts of reserves or liquidity at our own disposal if say for instance tomorrow morning our major depositors wanted their money back um, there are minimum and maximum thresholds on all of these things and the set of reports that would be produced at five o'clock was to confirm that we were operating within these thresholds. Right. Likewise, first thing in the morning, after a, a, an overnight run of all the data and processing of all the data, we would reproduce those very same reports first thing in the morning the next day to confirm that what we saw at five o'clock in the afternoon is indeed the true and accurate reflection of where the bank is at. Right. And you're the one who has to sign those things and are legally held responsible if it's a lie. So I I and my assistant produce these reports, sign off the reports, and then um, every executive member of the management has to sign off every set of reports. So the head of credit, the head of risk, uh, the, the, the head of trading, um, the head of IT, everybody has to sign off every single set of daily reports saying, yes, they are fully aware of where we're at. Wow. Okay. All right. So there you are. What is it? IFC? IFSC. IFSC. Irish Financial Services Center. Right. And Unicredit. And we're in 2007. So tell us what began to unfold. What, what was starting to come across your desk? Well, I began working for Unicredit Ireland in the spring of 2007. I'd been headhunted by the CEO and to um, come and be the head of risk at Unicredit. My previous experience had been of working in risk management in a variety of German banks in the IFSC. And um, as of the 1st of July 2007, in accordance with the ECB, um, the Central Bank of Ireland or Financial Services Authority was bringing into force a new measurement, a new way of calculating our liquidity. So instead of, to make it simple, instead of just saying, right, do I have money in my pocket today to pay the mortgage and buy the groceries? we need to be able to see that you'll have money in a week as well. Oh, so they increased, they increased the amount that you needed to keep? They changed the measurements insofar as, whereas until then it was, it was let, I'm trying to make it simplistic, yeah. yes. until then it was enough to say, do you have money Yes, in your pocket, yes or no? Yeah. I might own Selfridges on, on whatever street it is, but that's not a liquid asset. It's not something that I can turn into money. Right. So there's a very precise definition of what counts as liquid assets. So 
at any given time, do you have a sufficient amount of liquid assets to meet your obligations should they arise? Got you. The idea of the new set of regulations was we want to be extra cautious and say, not only do we want to make sure that you've got the money for tomorrow, we want to make sure that you also meet the requirements a week from today. Okay. Good. Okay, got you. So this is why we do forecasting around the clock. How much do we have coming in? How much do we have going out? What are our commitments? Um, we also have to allow for the fact that, say, for instance, uh, a company like British Telecom might have borrowed £200 million for six months. They might decide after four months that they don't need it anymore and they give it back early, for which we penalise them, of course, but you know, <laughs> the money's bumped. <laughs> Oh, and I mean, and and it's it's worth for those who might not know, Unicredit is a huge bank. This is not a small bank. The total balance sheet of the group at the year that I resigned was one trillion euro. That's a little bit more than I have. <laughs> it's a lot more than I have. <laughs> okay, all right. So we know what you're doing now. So tell us what starts to happen. So. Under the regulations of the Irish regulator, um, there would be there was a trial run of the old method and the new method of liquidity calculations to be run in parallel for the six, first six months of 2007, making sure that um, the banks were fully aware of a how to calculate these new requirements and B, that they, the banks met these new requirements because, as I say, they were more stringent than the previous requirements. Okay. So we were given six months of a parallel run to make sure that we wouldn't, that we'd be able to comply with the new requirements when they came into the force on the 1st of July of 2007. Okay. Now, during the month of July, on several occasions, the liquidity report under the new set of guidelines showed us to be horrifically short of requirements. Okay, horrific is a big old word. What does horrific mean to a very to a senior banker like you? Because horrific for me is fifteen quid. Well, se several billion a day. What? So yeah, several billion a day. This is what that that you're short of. Yes. Okay. All right. So, Carry on. Sorry. <laughs> it's not it's not a question of you know there's five hundred euro missing or fifty thousand or five million missing. You know what's five million? Oh, between friends, we're it's a, nothing. No, it's fine. We're a thirty something billion euro bank, so obviously I investigated and said, okay, you know, when we closed closed the shop yesterday at five o'clock, it all looked all right. How come it doesn't look all right this morning? And uh, discussed this with my CEO and different heads of departments and was told that, uh, no, it must be some sort of computer glitch and that everything is fine. As, I, as, as the five o'clock reports showed the day before. Right. How did you feel? Did you feel relieved or or skeptical? Well, quite concerned because we're a 30 billion bank and uh, 
when I would say, okay, so how do you know that the facts, are, that the figures are the correct ones? Oh, well, I have this back of an envelope beer coaster calculation for a 30 billion balance sheet. <laughs> That's a heck of a big coaster. <laughs> endless amounts of derivatives. How do you how do you calculate derivatives on a beer coaster? <laughs> and and then all of a sudden the, the the figures were fine for a few days and everything was fine and then all of a sudden it wasn't. Another glitch. I would say that you know we've you know I'm I'm signing this report and you know we've now realize that this trade or that trade wasn't booked properly and that's the reason for this uh, breach of requirement and actually it's all fine yeah and uh, it was on the back of my signature that the other managers including the ceo were signing off they said well you're the risk manager you're the one preparing this report so if you say it's fine then it must be fine okay all right <laughs> but weren't they telling you it was fine as well though absolutely and on more than one occasion their explanation including my ceo was oh but you're new at the bank it's just you're not very familiar with the way we do things or... <laughs> yeah but it's not like it's not like you were a new risk manager. You are, were a professional. You no, worked at the bank, so, you know. At, at that stage, I'd been doing risk management for definitely more than 15 years, so. Yeah. So you prob probably knew what you were doing. Well, I had a vague idea, yes. <laughs> which, is, which, is why, which is why they went to such pains to headhunt me from where I was working. Yeah, right. Okay, so now, now that it's... It's gone sideways a second or third time. I mean, how many times did it go sideways? It's gone like sideways several times. In the meantime, two things happen. I engage with a London-based IT company that specializes in banking IT, yeah. which had um, been hired by this highly reputable Irish bank at the time to do the, precisely the same type of calculation for them with the blessing of the central bank of ireland so ah, okay it's not that i just opened the the yellow pages and picked up an <laughs> it company no this was an it company that was obviously well versed in what these requirements were and yeah. how to produce the figures so you're getting the uber experts to double check exactly now that bank happened to be anglo-irish bank oh you're kidding me <laughs> No. <laughs> okay. Anglo-Irish, the largest collapse. <laughs> okay. All right. So well, mind, well, at, at the time, at the time, Anglo-Irish Bank was be, still being taught as a case study at Fontainebleau, at INSEAD in France, of a case study of how the banking of the future should be. <laughs> I didn't know that, Jonathan. That's just comic. Okay. <laughs> well, that's reality. Right. Okay. Another part of reality was that as I was signing these, what I increasingly suspected were fictitious reports, a bank called Northern Rock in England was beginning to show signs of less than healthy conditions, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, that's when the run started. Right. Go and okay. so I'm watching the evening news with reports of people standing three blocks away to try and withdraw their cash from Northern Rock. Yeah. 
Meantime, I'm the one signing for this 30 billion bank that we do have cash, knowing fully well that mm, not quite sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you get this other company to check, right? Yes. Yeah, so this company is checking. I've uh, arranged for them to log into our systems remotely and access all the data they needed. And uh, meantime, another report comes out and it claims that for one of the benchmarks for which the law had stipulated, you cannot go beneath 90% of said liabilities as yeah. assets. So, Okay, so if you had 100 billion in liabilities, you definitely have to have 90 billion in assets to correct. Hand. Okay, all right. We only had 70. Whereas okay, that's the quite law itself, <laughs> whereas the law itself stipulates very clearly that a breach is a 1% deviation. So if you're at 89, you've breached the law, you have to notify us, the central bank, immediately. You have to call in your audit committee. You have to inform your internal audit, your external audit. All hell should break loose at 89. Yeah. And we're, at 70. we're at 70. Yeah. So, yeah, at 89, you have to call in international rescue. <laughs> Correct. Uh, at 70, yeah. Jesus, that's a brown trouser moment. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> the, the big problem with 70 is if... Allegedly, you'll know what you're all doing over there, boys and lads in expensive suits. How on earth did you get to 70? Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> in theory, to repair such a, a difficulty, let's call it, can be done very quickly by you ring your parent bank on the continent, in our case, Milan, and say, well, I misbehaved last night. Can I have a couple of billion <laughs> until tomorrow or next week? Uh, because I need the books to look good. Which, of course, would also prompt questions about, you know, do you actually know what you're doing if you're ringing us up looking for billions? Yeah. Right, okay. Do you, know what, do you know what was done about that? Well, from what has transpired over the years, it would clearly seem that neither my CEO nor the Central Bank of Ireland informed their respective contacts authorities in Italy. So my CEO never told our head office in Milan that we were in breach of law. And contrary to what the Irish finance minister later stated about the Central Bank of Ireland having notified its counterparts, i.e. Banca d'Italia, the Central Bank of Italy, the governor of the Central Bank of Italy at that time, who would have been the person to be notified that the biggest bank on his watch has a petulant child in Ireland, was none other than Mario Draghi, who later became ECB president. Yeah, right. Mario Draghi is on record twice, both at the European Parliament and in the Irish Parliament, as stating very clearly that he was never, ever informed of the breaches at Unicredit Ireland in 2007. Okay, wow. so someone is lying. Wait a minute, what's happened to your forensic company in England? This is just a new report that's come through in the bank. Are the auditors, you know, the forensic company, are they still pending? Are they still thinking? Oh, yes, because as I'm watching Northern Rock slowly but surely collapse, this audit company having 
succeeded in connecting to our balance sheet and all all uh, sections of our balance sheet. I, of course, informed them that you know we need their help as soon as possible yes. because we've just reported a breach of twenty percent. Jesus, right? Okay. They rang me that evening at home and said, "Well, we've just concluded your figures." And your actual breach is forty percent. Oh my god! So whereas oh. the minimum threshold is ninety, I repeat, the minimum is ninety. You're at fifty, Jonathan. Wow. Can you remember what you felt at that moment? I know it's horror. Back. I mean, was it one of those where you felt I might just have to rush to the loo? Because that—that's just colossal. And your signature has been on these things. It's my signature on these things, and all you see on television is people standing outside Northern Rock saying, can we have our money, please? Yeah. Yeah, and those are the people it's your job to look after. Yes. Yeah, that's your job. You're the one who essentially stands yes. between them and having to queue up and find that there's no money left. You're the one who protects Correct. them. Okay. If, if the central bank has defined a material breach as 1%, to be told that your breach is actually 40%. I'm guessing you had another glass of wine that evening and had a, a proper sit-down. I suddenly sat down, yes, and walked into the office the next day and said, I hereby resign. Wow. Yeah, because they had not allowed you to... And when when did they find out that this other company had checked? Did you tell them then? Or... Oh, when I told them. I told them, I said, you know, you know, ring London, ring London for yourselves and see what they have to say. Right. They could say this with a confidence of, you know, we're doing these calculations already for Anglo and we're good at them. So we know what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. Which is more that I can, which is more that I can say about what we knew about our own systems. Because our systems were completely erratic. How could we go from being compliant for three or four business days at a time and suddenly incompliant on the fifth day, but by such a margin. Yes. God. Okay. So what were the reaction to your bosses at this point? The people who'd been saying, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just keep signing. Well, because of the fact that I cited irregularities at the bank in my letter of resignation, Within days, I received an email asking me to withdraw my resignation um, and that I would be given a different job, either within that bank or within another Italian bank operating in IFSC. Why? Why did they um, want that to happen? Well, you can ask them. <laughs> I also resigned in the knowledge that my position as the bank's risk manager had been ratified by the board of directors and the central bank of ireland had been notified that i'm officially the risk manager for this operation yeah now i knew that the central bank was due to come in for a risk audit within several weeks and i wanted it to be on record that the risk manager departed and departed citing irregularities yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. What actually transpired, and I know this from people I kept in touch with within the bank, 
is when the central so in response to my official notification of the breach all we got the next day is and of course we said oh yeah but don't worry that was fine we fixed it mommy and daddy don't worry there's nothing to see so uh the response the response from the central bank was oh so please there's nothing to see we've duly noted that there was a problem now there isn't goodbye good luck no no further questions or visits as to how on earth did you get to 70. wow okay eventually the central bank did arrive for its scheduled audit and on that very day and i know this because i kept in touch with the london company as well all connections to the london company were cut so they booted them out so they couldn't watch anymore correct so the 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 central bank of ireland comes in to audit them and they make sure the london people can't see correct and what i was told because they know what they're doing <laughs> and they're doing it for angle already yeah mm. the way it was put to me was jonathan all hell broke loose with the central bank literally taking over the bank for about two weeks they didn't close it obviously no and to this day they are refusing to say whether or not they sanctioned the unicredit um for anything that transpired uh during these months so we don't know if unicredit got in any trouble at all for they 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 did they they were sanctions some months later because they bought one portuguese bond too many <laughs> okay well, that's irrelevant okay <laughs> but and they were sanctioned something like three hundred thousand euro which is probably the flower budget for the head office in Milan. <laughs> but Jonathan, you were saying that it's, you know, the, the legalities around all this, I mean, why wasn't more done at the time? And what, and what happened to you? Well, my life was turned over because I couldn't secure employment anywhere else. Um, as you might recall, a good few banks came crashing down in 2008. Yeah. Um, we had uh, RBS in the UK. Yeah. Uh, NatWest as well, there's still. And there's NatWest and yeah. RBS. HBOS, yeah, the whole thing. HBOS, RBS, um, by then had taken over Ireland's Ulster Bank. Oh, yeah. And uh, during those perilous days of nobody's quite sure what is guaranteed and what isn't guaranteed in terms of depositors, um, there were massive flows of money from RBS into its um, Irish subsidiary Ulster Bank. Right. Because Ireland, and this was a year after, this is September 2008, Ireland overnight on a Sunday night guaranteed all of its depositors for any amount. Right. Which was completely contrary to everything that had been achieved by the Eurozone and the Euro bloc because the 
idea was that there would be a level playing field between all eurozone countries yeah yeah so for example the german bank side worked for we still had bonds that were entirely issued by us commercial banks but entirely um guaranteed by the federal yeah. government of germany so effectively these were as good as german government bonds yeah we were made over the years to relinquish those because obviously it wouldn't be a fair playing field if we were trying to sell those bonds while say bnp paribas that didn't have a backing from the french government was trying to sell its own bonds as well yeah so the fact that ireland suddenly overnight we're guaranteeing everything yeah unilaterally guaranteeing everything was an obvious indication that uh, Unicredit wasn't the only bank with liquidity question with, with questions all over its liquidity situation. Yeah, yeah. Because at a later stage, the Prime Minister, the Taoiseach of Ireland, referred to that evening of that weekend of the overnight guarantee of 2008 by saying that we would have had to call the army to man the cash machines on the money on Monday morning had we not put the guarantee in place on the Sunday night. Okay, that's the bit that really annoys me because you don't need to guarantee deposits up to any level if the people you're protecting are the ones who are going to be queuing up at the cash points. That that image is ordinary people needing to get their money out like Northern Rock. Yeah. But none of those people are going to have deposits that would have been above the deposit level guarantee that had been in place before. I mean, here it's £80,000. I don't know anyone who has more than £80,000 in their account. So saying, well, we have to guarantee it up to any level, it's got nothing, absolutely nothing to do with 99% of the people who bank in Ireland, of, of Irish people with bank accounts. It's to do with the corporations who use Ireland as the place where they hide their profits because it's a low tax center and they would have lost all of that money so they're bailing out apple microsoft and god knows who else those are the people that 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 the overnight guarantee was supporting not not well, anyone think, in ireland i think i think that that would be quite a reasonable conclusion given <laughs> the fact that later, later on it transpired it was known that apple was sitting on a pile of cash in Ireland that was larger than the Greek national debt. Christ. Okay. Um, so I think we I suspect I, that on, on that Sunday night when the Greek bank, when the, the Irish government decided to issue what it called this blanket guarantee, i.e., no limits guarantee on everything, it was a choice between either upsetting the Europeans and overnight supplying a government guarantee which other banks were forced to withdraw or let go of for years by that period, or having to ring a good few multinationals and say that the money's gone. Yes. Well, on top of that, in the summer of 2010, after this highly reputable Anglo-Irish bank collapsed into nothing and the Irish taxpayers were bulldozed into picking up the tab for 
unsecured bondholders, unsecured. Yeah. Um, there was much debate about what this in the, during that summer of 2010. There was much debate about what did the central bank know and not know about in terms of Anglo crashing into the ground. And uh, in the run up to the crash of Anglo, what Anglo <clears throat> did, which was of course highly illegal, was to lend money to Irish Life and Permanent, an insurance company, uh. who then deposited the money back with Anglo as if they were depositors off the street. So at a time when Anglo's shares were sinking rapidly, Anglo put out this claim to say, oh, look, there is such confidence in us that we are having yeah. millions placed with us as deposits. Well, it was their money. Get of course. That's, that's, almost, that's almost the corporate version of kiting a check, which well, you'd, be, you'd be arrested it was for. Done. It was done, and there's no dispute over that now at least with the knowledge of the central bank, if not with the encouragement of the central bank of Ireland, which is why when this made headlines, I went down to my nearest police station and said, I have something else to tell you about the central bank of Ireland. This is three years after my resignation. Yeah. So you actually went to the Garda? I did. And I took with me a copy of the regulation, which my bank breached repeatedly and i said well here's a letter here's the letter of the law here's the crime and i'm the criminal and uh i was uh the the person whom i dealt with at the garda station took this all very seriously said that the fraud squad would be in touch with me shortly uh, it's within two weeks of that time <clears throat> on that visit to the Garda station, I did receive a phone call from the Garda fraud squad to say that they had, were setting up a special banking team and that they would be in touch with me. And I never heard anything ever again. But you'd actually presented in, yourself to them as, as you just said, the criminal. In other words, you said, I, I, I was the risk manager, I was signing these things. And presumably you would have yeah. then said to them, I did no, this was wrong, and I told my bosses, but yes, my signature's on there. So so there's a predicate crime. I mean, if you turn yourself in and say, I've broken the law, no one can be in any doubt that a, a, crime, <laughs> a crime had been committed. And I said, this crime happened repeatedly on my watch as risk manager of this bank, and here's a copy of my letter of appointment as the bank's risk manager. Right, so there's nothing that they even have to... So there's no shortage of evidence here. <laughs> it's like turning up with your black mask on and your stripy top and the big bag with swag, swag yeah. and you say, look, here's the money I stole. Exactly. But they did nothing? I mean, they didn't even threaten so, to arrest you or something? I did get this um, phone call about two weeks later to say, we're on the case, we'll be back to you. Never heard from them again. And then subsequent to my appearance at the... Joint Committee of Finance in the Irish Parliament in 2017, the head of the committee, John McGuinness, initiated a meeting with one of the chiefs of the Irish police, who's in charge of financial conduct or whatever it is. And he made a big deal, this person whom we met, 
about how they took my uh, quote-unquote allegation so seriously that he had summoned the head of that police station who had in the meantime retired. He had summoned him to the meeting to say, you know, Mr. Sugarman is claiming he was at your station and this is the c complaint, quote-unquote, he made. And oddly and funnily enough, in that very Irish way, um, but we were able to ascertain precisely who dealt with my complaint because it turned out that A, she was the first woman to ever be allowed to work as a policewoman in that station. It's a bit of a suburban station, so mm. not slap bang in the middle of the city. And when I pointed out that she was charming and had a slight country accent, everybody burst out laughing and said, yeah, that's, that's your woman, that's the one. <laughs> So I had a sigh of relief, as in, okay, so we're not unclear as the fact on the fact that this all transpired in 2010, to which the response was, no, you were never there. What? Correct. But, okay, what did you say? John McGuinness said that this was time to leave. There was no point in continuing the meeting. Wow. On top of that, because um, Kathleen Barrington, who at the time was a journalist for the Sunday Business Post, and you met her on your visit to Dublin, yeah, I remember, yeah. had covered uh, aspects of my story and the fact that Senator David Norris raised it with the Minister of Finance in the Irish Senate, the central bank said, well, if anybody feels they have any information we should be aware of, they should by all means come forward and we will treat it confidentially. So I set up, I contacted the central bank and I said, well, guess what? I have something to tell you. <laughs> I um, bet they were uh, thrilled. So I turned up together with Michael Smith, who is the editor of Village Magazine and a barrister in his own right. And I said, okay, here I am today to tell you about what else went on at Unicredit. But before I proceed with that, I'd like to refer to your statement to the business post that this will be done in confidence. And what does this confidentiality pertain to? To which Michael Smith, the barrister, clarified to say, Jonathan is about to spill the beans and tell you about what else happened at Unicredit. Do we have your word that this is in confidence? No, said the chairman of the meeting. We will have to break the meeting because I will have to seek further instructions. Oh, my God. After about 10 or 15 minutes, the meeting resumed, and it was made clear to me, and this is something that Michael Smith then wrote about in his magazine, that if I were to disclose any further details of breaches of regulations at Unicredit, I would be exposing myself to potential arrest by the police. On what grounds? That I was obviously in broad daylight admitting, admitting to a crime, and the central bank certainly didn't want to hear about any more crimes. To which we asked, so what exactly was the confidential aspect of this meeting? In the preparations for this meeting, and I still have this in writing, from Peter Oakes, who was head of something at the Central Bank at the time, and now advertises his skills in compliance 
um, practices. Um, Peter Oakes, in writing, forbade me to record the meeting in which I was the one who came to do the talking. So, A, they did not want a record of the meeting in terms of a recording, and B, they <laughs> threatened me, having made it clear that I was coming to tell them about what had further details about what had transpired at Unicredit in 2007, they then turned around and said, if you say one more word, we'll arrest you. But, but they so, are going to arrest you for being well, a I person... Well, I could potentially to... be arrested, yes. Well, then, if I mean, if that's the way they operate, doesn't it make it impossible for anyone to inform the regulator about misdeeds in a bank? Which is why I did my very best to publish... Michael's subsequent piece in Village Magazine, in which he stated clearly that I was threatened by the central bank. That not only had I been threatened by Unicredit's legal eagles, who happened to be the same legal eagles advising the central bank of Ireland, and I should also point out that after um, he uh, finished being director of Unicredit Ireland, my chairman, Brian Hillary, then became a director on the board of directors of the Irish Central Bank. The regulator, who didn't want to know what was going on in Unicredit. Correct. Fantastic. And it was on account of these inquiries from different journalists that the Central Bank um, then made this big deal about, oh, no, we've set up yet another team to investigate Mr. Sugarman's claims, and or, or it was done externally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And guess what? But we found nothing. Did they talk to you? This this new? No, of course not. <laughs> so when they set up an external group who were going to get to the bottom of what went on with with Unicredit and what Sugarman was talking about, but they decided not to talk to Sugarman. Correct. Fantastic. Okay, um, great. At a later date. With, at a meeting with the governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, who's now Christine Lagarde's deputy, I said, uh, would you not think that uh, an investigation of any sort of Unicredit of 2007 would be somewhat tainted while its chairman is sitting on your board? At which point... Professor Lane got very irate with me and said, how dare you suggest? And I said, well, I'm not suggesting. I'm just saying that there might be a perceived conflict of interest. <laughs> I mean, they're keeping it all in-house. How can it be working? That's, that, as David pointed out, that it's not encouraging people to come forward and sort of tell the truth. No, it's the last thing they want. Right. Well, over the years, you have approached the different political parties, haven't you? And Or maybe they've approached you, but you've, you've Joe, given the story, Burton, haven't you? Including Joan Burton, who at the time was the head of the Labour Party, who thought, who was just about to go into coalition with Fine Gael. And um, she, I think, was quite conflicted about... She, she used to teach accounting and accountancy. So it's not as if she didn't understand what I was explaining to her. And um, shortly before the elections, she put a question in, as opposed to David Norris, who read out his question at the Senate and had to be 
answered to by the Minister of Finance, Joan Burton, just putting a written question for a written submission for a written reply, just so that she could get it off the agenda. And at a later stage, when she, a few months later, did become the Tornishta, which is Deputy Prime Minister in Ireland, and was asked privately about her meeting with me, her only reference to it was, oh, that Jew. Oh, no. Wow. Oh, okay. All right. That was the head of the Irish Labour Party but in Gavin. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Jonathan, I mean... I'm uh, I'm certainly no expert in financial matters, and everything that you've you've told us today is it's so clear. I can't see how somebody can turn around and sort of say, "Well, I'm not clear about this." Well, here is me, sixteen years later, still wondering. What? Yeah, no, it's terrible. Well, I I'm sort of slightly boggled about this word whistleblower. You, you're, you're always referred to as a whistleblower. I've referred to you as a whistleblower. But when I think about it, it's such a weird concept. What does it mean? I mean, I, I think to myself, if I saw someone being mugged out in the street and phoned the police and said, quick, someone's being mugged, can you come do something about it? Does that make me a whistleblower? Surely that just makes me a citizen trying to observe the law. Well, I'd, I'd even go further than that by saying that as a risk manager... The reason a banking license stipulates the requirement for a risk manager is that it could be said that I am there as the eyes and ears of the law round the clock to make sure that banks don't go under and don't require a taxpayer's bailout because I'm there to make sure that the law is observed at all times. Mm -hmm. And it's a legal requirement as well, isn't it? Yes. So. I was doing my job. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a difficult question, Jonathan? And I know this is a very difficult thing for you to talk about because to have that much injustice heaped upon you, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't like thinking about it. But there are risk managers out there in banks. If someone found themselves in a similar sort of position to you, and that must be happening a lot because we've had banks collapsing recently, would you be able to say, yes, yeah, stand up and be counted, given what happened to you? It's a, I suppose it's another way of asking, would you do it again? Of course I would do it again. I mean, I um, there was no way f for me to possibly predict what the following 16 years were going to look like. Yeah. And having to turn to friends and strangers to ask for money to put food on my table and roof above my head. Yes. But um, And all, all the people who have tried to silence you, they all carried on in high-paying jobs, I suppose, can continue to be the smartest people in the room. Oh, absolutely, yes. In fact, much like the um, banking inquiry that you had in the UK, headed by, I believe, Sir John Vickers. Mm -hmm. um, there was an inquiry in Ireland as part, and it was one of the stipulations of Ireland's bailout by the IMF and the ECB, etc., that there should be such an inquiry. 
the politicians, of course, turned around and said, well, we're politicians. We're not supposed to understand off-balance, on-balance, off-balance sheet, derivatives, etc. We need experts to advise us. And uh, one of the said experts on the Irish panel was none other than Anglo-Irish Bank's risk manager. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, Jonathan. It, 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 so it is beyond the first tragic. Person who, the first person who you should have, who you would have thought would be in the dock giving evidence. Sympathetic was towards actually, your position. Um, no, no, the opposite. No, but you would have expected him to have been sympathetic. Yes, in the in the right world, yes, in the right world, you would have said, "Well, the same law that applied to Jonathan applies to you. How do you feel about five years in jail?" Yeah. Um, no, he was actually made an advisor to the committee. All right. So let's be clear. Knowledge. Let's be clear. If you're the risk manager who upholds the law and does what the law requires, and morally is protecting the, the, the Irish citizen, you end up where you are. If you're the risk manager who says nothing, you get to later be promoted to be the advisor to the banking inquiry, which is inquiring into... Your own that. collapse, yes. Okay. So... This, the cleverest men in the room are the ones who keep their heads down, do misdeeds, and then don't tell anyone. And the stupidest person in the room is you, the one who does the right thing. Correct. Is there any point in having risk managers, Jonathan? Other than the PR value? Can you think of... Well, a, I mean... I'm sure risk managers in the city get paid large amounts of money and get put on all sorts of boards of directors later on, and some of them probably get some knighthoods and some nice cars. So, yes, there's definitely a point for it in for them in it, yes. Yeah. And the bank can carry on. I mean, what have we heard about the risk management of Credit Suisse, one of the seven biggest banks in the world that collapsed before Easter? Or the risk managers of any of these half a dozen American banks that collapsed. Yeah. You've heard nothing. No. Yeah. Listen, Jonathan, um, we're, if it's all right with you, what we thought we would do is. Yes. Are you still using the um, Patreon account? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll put a link to that in the notes below uh, this podcast and also David's set up... Um, a substack, we'll do the same. Yeah. Um, thank you very much I'll, for your story, Jonathan. It's, I'll be very grateful if you can put in a link to I'll both do, my Patreon and to my PayPal. Yeah, sure. Pounds. I'll do more than that, mate. All right. Um Jonathan, thank you for talking to us. I wish there was something more... Prof I feel like I should be able to say something more profound, but g given the great avalanche of absolute corrupt idiocy, um, it's difficult to know what to say, really, other than take well, care of yourself. I will, I will now send you the item about Anglo's risk manager being appointed to the inquiry. <laughs> All right, we'll include that in the link so that people can enjoy it. Jonathan, yes. thanks very much indeed for coming on.
Thank you, guys. Take care. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye.